I was struck the first hour in listening to the song that Dee sang during the offertory in Heaven's Eyes. Uh, reminded me of a tape that I received in the mail from my uh, sister several weeks ago. And back to back on this same tape were two songs. The first one was a song that was the theme of the Olympics in 1988, um, One Moment in Time, Whitney Houston. Beautiful song. But if you remember that uh, song, the theme of that song is that you, uh, you touch eternity when you win, when you break the tape in that moment when you've been all that you can be. You, you have a glimpse uh, of eternity and true life. And then immediately following that song on the same tape was um, the song that Dee just sang, In Heaven's Eyes. And the theme of that song is that uh, losing is the key to winning. And that it's, it's when we lose, when we suffer setback, reversal, defeat, when we're flattened. It's at that point that we are open to the life of God and experience uh, life as it's truly meant to be. And it just struck me how stark the contrast is between the philosophy of the world and the philosophy that we're taught in the scriptures. I'd like to have you turn this morning to Mark chapter 8. We'll look this morning at another uh, one of the Lord's miracles, which was uh, unique, unlike any others that he did. We looked at one last week that was like that. As you remember, when Jesus cursed the fig tree, that miracle was unique in that he used his power to destroy rather than to heal. And that set that miracle apart from any of the other of his works. And this week we're going to look at a miracle which is unique in that it took the Lord two applications to produce complete healing. This was a healing that took place in two stages. All of the other healing miracles that the Lord did produced an instant uh, restoration. Those who were lame immediately leapt to their feet, picked up their pallets. Those who were blind immediately saw. Those whose hands were withered immediately had them restored to them. But this miracle, unlike all of those others, took place in two stages. The first touch from the Lord resulted only in a partial healing. It took two applications. And it's intriguing to uh, explore the question why this took place in two stages. Why wasn't one touch sufficient? As you can imagine, that's led, uh, uh, given rise to endless amount of speculation and discussion over the reason for this. And I hope as we look at this passage together, we can get a glimmer as to why that took place. Well, let's read the story together, starting in verse 22 down through 26. And they, that is Jesus and the Apostles came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and entreated him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking about. Then again he laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently, and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. We're told that this miracle took place in the village of Bethsaida. It's called a village twice in this little passage. The distinction between a village in the Lord's time and a regular full-scale city was that cities had walls around them. 
villages were unwalled, even though they could be fairly sizable. There were probably more than 15,000 inhabitants in the city of Bethsaida. Uh, Bethsaida means the house of hunting or fishing, and it was located right on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, just east of where the Jordan River empties into the Sea of Galilee. We know at one point that this had been the home of Peter and Philip and Andrew, and at some point uh, during the public ministry of the Lord, they evidently had moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum, which is where Peter lived at this time. Now, they had crossed the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and come to shore at Bethsaida, and soon after they arrive in the village, this blind man is, uh, is brought to Jesus. Now, I think that it was probably the disciples who brought this blind man to the Lord. You'll notice that the they in verse 22, the they who came to Bethsaida is clearly a reference to the apostles and Jesus. And that's probably the same they that brought this blind man to the Lord. Possibly from the time that they had lived in Bethsaida previously, they had known this man. When they come back to Bethsaida, they discovered that he is blind and bring him to the Lord to be healed. This man probably at one point in his life had been able to see because when Jesus touches him initially, he's able to see men, but they look like trees. So this man had to have some kind of visual track record of what men looked like and what trees looked like so the two could be confused. So at one point, this man probably had eyesight, but had lost it at some point. And when the disciples came back to Bethsaida, they met this man who was now blind and brought him to the Lord. An intriguing thing in this that we see in many of the other miracles is that they brought this man to the Lord that he might touch him, end of verse 22, and then twice as the story unfolds, Jesus lays his hands on this man, that he imparts his his healing power through physical touch. Now we saw in one of the early miracles that the Lord did that this wasn't necessary. The healing of the nobleman's son took place at a distance of some uh, 19 miles, and Jesus healed that Son with simply a spoken word. So it wasn't necessary for Jesus to be in physical contact with those he wanted to heal, but quite characteristically, this is the pattern he chose that in order to impart or in imparting his healing power, he would he would touch the individual who needed his healing. And I think the reason for that is that Jesus wanted this to be very personal exchange, and that reaching out and touching the one who needed his his help was a way of making the the healing transaction personal. It was a way of expressing to the one who came to him his personal concern and affection for that individual. It wasn't like some sort of electronic transfer where resources are transferred from one account to another quite automatically and uh, by a machine. This was a very personal sort of transaction. And I think it's because the Lord understood the importance of physical touch and contact in, in human relationships. That's still a a critical factor. Studies have been done on children, for instance, who have who have had to grow up without any physical contact for one reason or another, either through some kind of unique illness or through simple lack of parental care or attention. And they've discovered that the absence of, of touch, of physical contact and embracing and physical affection in, in early years has an incredibly withering effect on, on personality. It's one of the reasons I'm a real believer in, in touch in all uh, relationships between husband and wife, uh, continual pats and hugs and squeezes and nudges and hand-holding. I think it's a very important part of, of nurturing the health 
of a marriage relationship. It's important in our relationship with our children. One of the things that Debbie and I are committed to is that whatever else our kids remember about us when they grow up, they're going to remember that uh, their mom and their dad hugged them and uh, rolled around on the floor with them and uh, constantly had their arms around them to embrace them and, and to hug them. I've got a good friend who has children that are older than mine, has always been a model for me in this regard. They've done an excellent job of, of extending to their children this sort of physical uh, affection, and their kids just thrive on that. Uh, my friend was used to dropping his son off at school, and their regular pattern was to exchange a big hug just before his son got out of the car, and uh, this went fine until his son got into seventh grade. And uh, now it was really uncool to get a hug from your dad before stepping out of the car and seeing your buddy. So they made an arrangement where they would stop the car a 100 yards before they got to the school. <laughs> They'd give each other a big hug, and his dad would drive him up and drop him off. And it was real cool. Thanks for the lift, Dad. Check you later, you know. <laughs> but this is an important component of human relationships. And Jesus understood that. And he wanted to communicate to those that he wanted to heal that, that he had a personal concern and a personal affection for them. And so that's why he touches them. <clears throat> now, Jesus does an interesting thing in verse 23 that his first response to this appeal that he might touch this man and, and heal his affliction was to take him by the hand and lead him out of the village. Obviously, since the man was blind, he would need this sort of assistance. And so the Lord seizes his hand and ushers him out of the village of Bethsaida before he even starts the healing process. And then what makes it even more intriguing is that at the very end of the story, he tells the man to go straight home. Evidently, he lived in some nearby village told him to go straight home and not even to go back into the village. Don't even route your path home through the village of Bethsaida. And uh, it's intriguing to speculate on why that might be the case. Some have thought that this is uh, uh, what Jesus does in other cases, where he simply does not want a lot of attention, a lot of publicity. Jesus never was hungry for that sort of attention and recognition. Uh, he always simply ministered to people because they had a need, not because it would get his uh, face on the news. And that may have been his motivation. But I think there's a deeper reason for that. And it has to do with, uh, with what we see about evil in other places in the Scripture, that, uh, that I think it is possible for evil forces to exercise a sort of territorial or geographical uh, control. Certain cities, for instance, in biblical history, Sodom and Gomorrah, were so entirely in the grip of evil forces that the only thing the Lord could do with them was to destroy them. And I believe the village of Bethsaida was like that, that this little village was in the grip of dark forces, uh, forces that were hostile to spiritual life and to the truth. There was a callousness and a, a stubbornness and a hardness of heart in this village of Bethsaida. And what Jesus recognized is that this man was a victim of that environment, that uh, uh, growing up in an environment like this, which was so hostile to spiritual things, had dampened this man's ability to trust Jesus for healing. His faith was weak. It wasn't that the power of the Lord was weak, because he is sovereign, he's omnipotent, but the Lord has always chosen to work in response to faith. He's, as Ian Thomas says, he limits himself to the law of faith. 
He works only in response to faith and trust. And this man's faith was so weak that he simply didn't have the capacity to trust the Lord for the healing that he needed. And I believe that's why this healing took place in two stages. This man's faith had been so crippled by the environment in which he found himself that the Lord had to remove him from that environment in order to heal him and then warned him not to go back into that, that spiritual climate. And that's a reminder to us, I believe, of the importance of being in an environment which spiritually uh, nourishes us, that that is uh, critical for us. Uh, And this, I believe, is the balance to what the Scripture teaches us about being salt and light. We're instructed in the Scriptures to be salt and light, to penetrate our world and to love those who do not have access to the life of God and to bring them into the kingdom. But the balance to that is that the Scriptures always indicate that we must be Cognizant, we must be aware of the effect that the environment in which we are operating has on us. And if the environment in which we are surrounded begins to pull us away from God, then we may need to make some decisions. This is a particularly important uh, uh, measuring stick to use in evaluating close personal relationships in particular. The close friendships that I have the dating relationships that I have, the prospective marriage partner that I am considering. key question to ask there is, what effect does this friendship, does this relationship have on my walk with God? Uh, is it creating a climate in which I am drawn away from God or a climate in which I am encouraged to cling to the Lord? We see later in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus pronounced a woe on this village. It might be worth uh, turning there, Luke chapter 10, to see the woe that the Lord eventually had to pronounce on this community of Bethsaida. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, these were two utterly pagan cities, if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. Going back to Mark, if you jump back to Mark chapter 6, you will see another striking instance of the same thing. Beginning of Mark 6, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth, and this is where he says in verse 4, one of his most famous declarations, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And verse 5 says that he could do, he was not able to do any miracle there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered, he was amazed, astonished, marveled at their unbelief. That the spiritual atmosphere in Nazareth, as was the case in Bethsaida, was so hardened and resistant to the truth that it limited his ability to work in these environments. 
the environment that these people were in so snuffed out any spiritual life that, that faith couldn't bloom, it couldn't prosper in that environment. And it limited the healing power that he was able to dispense in those communities. So I believe that's why he takes this man out of Bethsaida and warns him uh, never to, to go back into the village. Now, if we want to be salt and light, that means it is critically important be, that we surround ourselves with the, with the right kind of fellowship to encourage faith. Because during the week, we will be in an environment which, by and large, is hostile to the truth. And we will be relating to people and, and having lunch with people and uh, di- discussing issues with people who have no concern for the things of God. Now, that's the right place for us. God's called us to be in that environment. But what we need is sort of an antidote to that kind of environment is to find fellowship and support in other places that will enable us to go back into that uh, spiritually polluted environment with a breath of fresh air. So the fellowship is important. I did a um, seminar several years ago out at the Idaho State Penitentiary, and one of the intriguing things I discovered over the course of that week is that a number of these inmates who were involved in, in our Bible studies and so forth and very responsive to the truth and to the Lord were back in for uh, repeat offenses. Often, uh, after having met the Lord in prison and grown through fellowship and instruction, they had been released on parole. Many of them, their sentences shortened for good behavior, gone back out onto the streets, and in a matter of time, done the same bozo thing that got them in the penitentiary in the first place, and were right back in for offenses they'd committed as believers. And I found this really curious. And so I asked each one of these men during the week what their explanation for it was. And each one, without exception, said that the problem was that when they got out, when they were released, they went back to their old friends and back to their old hangouts. And before long, surrounding themselves again with that sort of environment, uh, they wandered away from God and started to act foolish as they had before, wound up right back in. And each of them said that their their highest priority, highest commitment, if they were released again, was to find a place of fellowship where they could be surrounded by those who would encourage them uh, to cling to God. That's obvious that we can't blame everything on environment. That would be irresponsible. And maybe you've seen the cartoon, kid walks in the door, got a report card, straight Fs on this report card. And he kind of... St- saunters into the den, tosses the report card down in front of his dad and says, well, well, Dad, what do you think it is, environment or heredity? (laughs) So we can't ever use environment as an excuse for the choices we make, but we may need to make decisions that do uh, do affect the sort of spiritual climate in which we find ourselves. And so I think that's the explanation for why Jesus pulls this man out of the community of Bethsaida, instructs him not to go back. Now, in verse 23, we're told that once the Lord had brought him out of the village of Bethsaida, that his next step was to spit on his eyes, which is, which is interesting, sort of thing we discourage our children from doing. And I'm not really sure why uh, he does that. There's an intriguing thing, first of all, about this word. This is a word that uh, linguists uh, call, the term they use for it is this is a, a word that is formed by what's called onomatopoeia. That is, it's a word that makes the sound it is describing. We have words like that in English, like clunk. That word means uh, what it sounds like. Uh, we have other words like that, snap, crackle, pop. All of those are words that came into being because they sounded like 
the sound they were describing. The hiss of a snake is another word that came into the language for the same reason. Now, see if you can, uh, I'll give you the Greek word and see if you can guess what this Greek word means. The Greek word for this verb is patuo. And uh, that's what Jesus did. He patuoed on this man's eyes and then uh, laid his hands on it. We're really not sure why, but uh, we do know that uh, the people in the first century felt that there was healing power in saliva. And that may go back to the fact that our instinctive response when we cut ourselves or suffer some sort of abrasion is to immediately place the cut to our lips because the saliva does have a soothing effect. And it's also possible that the Lord was doing this because of the sound effects and because of the tangible contact because this man couldn't see what the Lord was doing. And so it was a way of communicating to the man that I am starting a process which is designed to heal your blindness. And so he does that and then lays hands on the man's eyes. And then Jesus asks him, do you see anything? It's interesting because it indicates that the Lord in his incarnation was not omniscient. If he wanted to know what this man saw, he had to ask him. That omniscience was one of the attributes of God that Jesus voluntarily gave up during the time of his incarnation. So he needed to ask this man, do you see anything? And this also suggests that Jesus was aware that there were certain factors that were at work in this situation that might impede the process of healing. He wasn't exactly sure himself what had happened as a result of his first touch. And so he asks the man, do you see anything? So the man in verse 24 looked up and said, I see men for I am seeing them like trees walking about. In other words, he says to the Lord, well, I can see, I'm no longer totally blind, but nor do I have 20-20 vision either. I can see men, but they're like vague shapes. Uh, my vision is obscure, it's fuzzy, it's clouded, and I see men like trees walking about. Now, many of you that wear glasses or contacts know exactly what this guy uh, is talking about. My vision is 2600 which means that what a normal person can see at 600 feet, I've got to be 20 feet away from it in order to see it. And if you've ever gone in for an eye exam, you know exactly what happens. You take off your glasses or take out your contacts. You sit down on the chair and they slap this device in front of you, which has all sorts of corrective lenses in it that the optometrist can adjust just by rotating a little wheel. And when you sit down, the lens in front of you, you can't see anything. You can barely even see the wall. And then gradually, as he adjusts the lenses, the letters on the wall begin to come into focus, and then you can see when the right corrective lens is in front of you, then you can see clearly. And then comes the part that I always hate. You know, just when you can see, then he starts asking you, okay, which is better, one or two? It looked the same to me, and I know I'm going to have to live with this decision for a year, and it drives me nuts. I hate that kind of pressure. But, but when the right corrective lens is in place, then everything's come, everything comes clearly into focus. And this was not true of this man. Remember when I was in Suriname a few years ago, uh, we were back in the bush at these little villages, all of which were built along a river for obvious reasons. We would go swimming and bathing in the river every afternoon. And Claude, the kind soul that he was, had just casually mentioned one day that this river in which we were bathing uh, that had piranhas in it. I said, but you don't have to worry because uh, they're all gone because of the people splashing around and stuff. No piranhas. But that's the sort of thing that does register in the back of your mind. And 
I had taken my glasses down there, left my contacts at home because I didn't want to hassle with that in the, in the jungle. And uh, so I had taken my glasses off, and I'm splashing around and swimming and floating when suddenly my eye is caught uh, upriver by a very sinister-looking shape uh, trolling the uh, river bottom. And I scrambled out of the uh, river uh, to protect myself and put on my glasses to go back and take a look at uh, what had threatened my life and found that I had escaped from a floating banana peel. Uh, but uh, my motto is that when you can't see, you can't be too careful. So I got out of there. So that's the, that's the condition that this man uh, was in. His uh, vision was obscured and it was fuzzy. So once again in verse 25, the Lord laid his hands upon his eyes and he looked intently. The verb also could be translated. He opened his eyes wide and was restored. That was a technical term for a medical cure in those days. He was healed. And he began to see everything clearly. The idea behind the word clearly is that he could see clearly from afar. Even things that were off at a distance came sharply uh, into focus. So there's a progression from verse 24 through verse 26. In verse 24, he looked up. Verse 25, he looked intently. And the end of verse 25, he saw uh, clearly. You could detect that progression even in the Greek verbs that are used. The first one in verse 24, he looked up is anablepo. Verse 25, he looked intently, diablepo. And finally, he saw everything is emblepo in the Greek. And so progressively, as a result of the second touch from the hand of the great physician, he was able to see clearly, and the Lord sent him on his way. Well, what lessons are we intended to learn from uh, this episode. I think one is very clearly the importance of, of fellowship in, in the Christian life, the importance of being aware of the effect that our environment, particularly the relationships we're involved in, have on us, and the importance of sustaining ourselves through drawing upon uh, relationships around us, a climate that enables us to go out into the world and to be, be salt and light. That's one important lesson. But I think there's a second constellation of lessons that revolve around the idea of this man's sight being restored. It's quite common in the scriptures, just as it is in ordinary life, for us to use physical blindness or physical sight as a metaphor or a figure for mental or spiritual blindness or perception. Uh, we say, for instance, that love is blind. And what we mean by that is not that literally uh, love uh, clouds people's physical vision, but that it often blinds them to weaknesses or uh, deficiencies in their partner or blinds them to certain problems that they are destined to encounter in this relationship. Love is blind. And I think in the scriptures, as we've seen before in these other miracles, that each one of these miracles is designed to be a, a parable in which the Lord teaches us something about our spiritual life, that the physical condition of the afflicted people we encounter in the Gospels, their physical condition is a peril, has a parallel or is a symbol of our spiritual condition. And that's particularly true in the Scriptures with sight and blindness, that physical blindness is a symbol of spiritual blindness. And so this man's healing from... His, spirit, his physical blindness is a symbol to us of what the Lord intends to do in healing our spiritual blindness. 
Now, the intriguing thing is that it took more than one application for this man's sight to be restored. Now, I think the lesson in that for us is that what God is, is interested in doing for us is, is giving us clear uh, spiritual perception. He wants us to see him, see himself clearly. He wants us to see the truth about life clearly. And he wants us to see ourselves clearly. He wants us to have a clear vision of all of these things, not clouded or indistinct or vague or out of focus. But what this story teaches us is that in order for us to have that sort of clear spiritual vision requires more than one touch from the hand of the great physician. That the initial touch that this man received from the Lord is analogous to the touch that we receive from the Lord at conversion. In other words, once this man had been touched by the Lord, it was no longer accurate to say that he was blind, that his total blindness had been remedied. He could see. He says, I can see. I see men as trees. And yet it would also not be accurate to say that he could see clearly because his vision was obscured. I believe that's what happens to all of us, that when we receive the initial touch from the Lord, he, he remedies our basic fundamental blindness about spiritual things. We begin to see certain things about life, that the key to life is God, that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died for my sins and that he has given me the gift of eternal life. And certain truths like this become clear to me. And yet, as we progress, we discover that what we need at different points in our spiritual experience is a second touch from the hand of the great physician to see other truths that he wants us to understand, to see more of his life and more of his character, develop a deeper understanding of who he is, not just a a mental grasp or an intellectual grasp so we can rehearse certain truths about God, but an actual uh, vision of who he is, uh, a deep-seated grasp and perception of the truth about life so that we believe it not just with our minds, but we believe it in our hearts. And that sort of spiritual perception, uh, for that kind of spiritual perception, we need a second touch from the hand of the great physician. There are a number of instances in the scripture where men have received this uh, sort of uh, second touch. I think of Isaiah. I've been going through the book of Isaiah with some of our interns this summer. You're familiar with the passage in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Isaiah was someone who believed in the Lord. He believed in Yahweh. He worshipped Yahweh. He obeyed Yahweh. And yet there was something that he needed to see before the Lord could commission him to be his spokesman to his generation. A vision in chapter 6 of the Lord seated on his throne in the temple, his train of his robe filling the temple. Remember the seraphim that were flying about and, and calling to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah saw in that vision something of the majesty and the, and the holiness of God. And in the same experience, he saw something of his own uncleanness. He said, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He realized in the same episode how unworthy he was to stand in the presence of God and to serve God. 
And then what he saw is one of the seraphim taking a burning coal from the altar of incense and a pair of tongs and fly over to him and touch his lips with the burning tongs to purify him and cleanse him from his uncleanness and equip him then to go out and minister to others. So he had a a second touch from the Lord to see something about God's greatness and holiness, something about his own sinfulness and unworthiness, and something about the completeness with which God had purified him and cleansed him and made him utterly acceptable in his sight. If you look down through church history, you'll see a couple of the same kind of uh, second touches from the great physician. Martin Luther was one who believed in God, believed in Jesus. His commitment to the Lord was so strong that he committed himself to the priesthood, became a monk, and yet struggled for years in his spiritual life with this feeling that he simply didn't measure up. His own sense of inadequacy, sense of insufficiency created profound depression for him, even though he was a believer trusted God with every fiber of his soul, he nevertheless felt unacceptable before uh, God. He felt that he did not measure up, that his life wasn't good enough. And when he would read passages in Romans 1, for instance, in which the scripture says, the righteous man shall live by faith. When Luther would read that verse, what he would Uh, read into that verse is that the righteous man is the man who is righteous in his behavior, who by his own effort has controlled his impulses and managed to produce a life which was good enough to pass muster with God. And that sort of man was accepted by God. And so when Luther would read a passage like that, he would feel condemned in his heart because he knew that he didn't even meet his own standards for life, let alone the standards of God. But one day as he was meditating on that passage in his cell, he suddenly realized that the righteousness that Paul was talking about there in Romans 1 is not a righteousness that he manufactured through self-effort and self-dependence, but was a righteousness, a status of total unconditional acceptance that God was willing to grant to him as a gift, simply in response to his faith, not something that he had to merit or to deserve, but something which was given to him freely as a gift. And Luther says when it dawned on him, he used the expression that his eyes were open, he saw the gates to paradise open wide, and I walked through with a glad heart. He had received a second touch from the hand of the great physician. Uh, Hudson Taylor is one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church, the one that pioneered missions to China in the 19th century. And Hudson Taylor went to China as a young man and had a successful uh, career there as a missionary. Uh, And yet for the bulk of his time there in China, he struggled with his sense of, of adequacy. He knew that Jesus was everything that he needed. And he knew that faith was the key to tapping the resource of the Lord. And yet he didn't seem to be able to find the faith to draw that life out of the Lord. And he, he struggled with this. He did not seem to be able to tap into the sufficiency of Christ. He did the best he could to, to generate faith, uh, to drum it up, to talk himself into believing 
in Christ, but he never could seem to pull it off. And at the moment in his life when the struggle was the most intense, he received a letter from a friend, and he wrote in a letter to his sister the results of this reading this letter. And, this, and I want you to notice the, the metaphor of sight that he uses to describe this. Hudson Taylor, When my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from dear McCarthy was used to remove the scales from my eyes. And the Spirit of God revealed the truth of our oneness with Jesus as I had never known it before. McCarthy, who had been much exercised by the same sense of failure, but saw the light before I did, wrote, But how to get faith strengthened, not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. As I read, I saw it all. If we believe not, he abideth faithful. I looked to Jesus and saw, and when I saw, oh, how joy flowed, that he had said, I will never leave you. Ah, there is rest, I thought. But this was not all he showed me, nor one half. As I thought of the vine and the branches, what light the blessed Spirit poured direct into my soul. How great seemed my mistake in having wished to get the sap, the fullness, out of him. I saw not only that Jesus would never leave me, but that I was a member of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. The vine, now I see, is not the root merely, but all. Root, stem, branches, twigs, leaves, flowers, fruit. And Jesus is not only that, he is soil and sunshine, air and showers, and 10,000 times more than we have ever dreamed, wished for, or needed. When we go through trough experiences in life, uh, this is what, what we need. What inevitably happens to us under circumstances of financial pressure, or stress, or grief, or disappointment, is certain truths about God become obscure to us, and we lose our clear vision of those things. And what we need in those times is a second touch from the hand of the great physician so that once again we might see the truth that he wants us to see, might see him and our status in him. Well, the question then naturally becomes, how do we get this second touch from him? I think we can learn from the example of this man. I think, first of all, that there are two extremes for us to avoid, to avoid in, in this dimension of life. And the first is to avoid the extreme of thinking that we do not need a second touch. That this is one of the greatest errors that we can make in the spiritual life is to feel like we have arrived, to feel like we've reached a point where we know everything there is to know about the Christian life and feel like we have now arrived and now it's our task to bring others up to the same plateau that we have reached. And this is what produces in life uh, hardness, indifference, coldness, dogmatism, uh, arrogance, rigidity, inflexibility, uh, unteachableness, is when we feel like we ourselves do not need a second touch from the hand of the great physician. Others may, but we don't. That's one extreme to avoid. I think a second extreme is on the other end is to 
give up hope and feel like we are perpetually doomed to live in this world of shadows where nothing seems clear to us. This man could have given up in discouragement, feeling like the best he was ever going to be able to do was to see men as trees walking about. And yet this story reminds us that uh, we are in the presence of the one who has the capacity to touch us in his time and give us a clear vision. I think the third thing that we need to do to receive this touch from the Lord is to answer the question that Jesus asks quite honestly, just as this man did. When the Lord asks us, what do you see or do you see anything, to be utterly honest if we are confused Uh, If we are bewildered, if we are angry, uh, we need to simply be honest with him. Tell him exactly what we see and how confused and bewildered we are. And then the fourth thing is to do what this man did is simply submit ourselves to the Lord and trust that in his time he will give us the touch and the vision of him and his truth that we so desperately need. I'd like to close with this uh, prayer, which uh, are the words of a familiar hymn. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, truth divine, dawn upon this soul of mine. Word of God and inward light, wake my spirit, clear my sight. Amen.